0: Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before the Lord, let us stand and affirm the promise that is related to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be at this holy place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name. Allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to heights higher than us and to break the chains of all evil and sin that holds us captive. May in this service be cursed all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, ignorance, covetousness, all of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people. And stand, O Lord, on the place of your rest, you in the ark of your greatness, And may your saints be clothed in your redemption, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. Allow us to discover your shining countenance. I lay this service in your divine arms. Guide it with your uplifted hand. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
1: اس کے
2: читает время день за днем и год уж позади Сколько их уже канула вечность Сколько еще будет перед
1: не страшно а с ним я живу
2: и все преодолею господи благослови меня впереди крутые повороты и обрыв Над пропастью большой ужас, смерти вихрем пронесется Над твоей усталою душой Но в молитве руки ты
1: подними И поются
2: слезы в тишине Молитва в небо дверь откроет, Лишь на ты ему в В дороге выпадет на долю иногда помни, если трудностей не будет, счастья не узнаешь никогда, Сто
1: ходит быстро. Буду с
2: Богом без Жизни и все преодолеем. Нас Господь Бога,
1: сполна. Пусть год за годом. Буду счастлив с Богом без We adore him, God the Lord, сад искупить и благой. Для меня ничего не надо, на земле, где злоба и кровь, ни больших городов, ни благо, не найду на земле любовь. И, друзей. и вошел в ту заветную землю, Землю тут, что искал быть своей, На земле, и стал ставь, ожидал столова моим, И ходи пред лицом твоим стал я в ожидании с наследий моих. Солнце снимаю, Я свату искровю печал. Мне сердце святилище духа,
2: мой эппель встречаю с тобой, Я храню его от порока, Чтобы слышать твой голос святой. Голос твой для меня, Ормана, Твоё слово закон для меня. Парсиленная небо, право,
1: наилучшая песня моя. Твой разлук и потерь Не зависеть от временного дела И победную песню спеть Но всему свое время бывает Будет время, уйду от скорбей А пока что слезы глотая, Буду петь для отца всех людей
3: And so so
0: before we again begin to study the depths of divine wisdom that yields our inheritance in Christ Jesus, the unchanging epigraph to our study of the depth and wisdom of God. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And Jesus said to his disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning Me. So that we as members of the Body of Christ divide with Christ all that was written about Him in Scripture, we will continue our study in the direction of our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and what we must do on our end so that we receive the right to set aside our former way of life in order to be clothed in a new way of life. And we are referring to the literal clothing of our decaying body into the new man before we are going to be raptured from the earth. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. That you put off, considering your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God into righteousness and holiness. For the fulfillment of this commandment, as we know, there are three basic commands and verbs. This is to set aside, to renew, and to clothe. Answering these fateful questions will affect whether we turn ourselves into vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath, or rather... Will we perfect the salvation that is given to us in the format of a deposit, or will we waste it? Because of this, our names will forever be blotted out of the Book of Life, although at one point they were written in there. In a certain format, we have already examined the first two questions and have stopped to examine the third question. What conditions must we fulfill so that through our renewed thinking we could begin the process of clothing ourselves into the powers of our new man who is created by God in Christ Jesus in the righteousness and holiness of truth? And in regards to clothing ourselves into our new man, we came to the conclusion that we need God's help in the subject of His mercy his mercy without which we will be unable to take off the old man with his works and without which we will not be able to renew ourselves with the spirit of our mind and without which we will be unable to be clothed into the new man and the means for accepting this kind of help expressed in the inheritance of God's mercies is none other than prayer and worship because prayer is simply the right that man gives the heavens to interfere here on earth and we are called to give God this right only on his established
3: conditions. One
0: of David's prayers written in the 143rd Psalm where he gives God the right to interfere in his life with His mercy and truth, it will be an example for us of our
3: inheritance. And this
0: has become the subject of our study. And so again again, let us immerse ourselves into the waters of grace in this prayer communication, these prayer words that David had expressed and that have become ours according to the mercy of God. O Lord, give ear to my supplications, in your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground, he has made me dwell in darkness, like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, my heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old, I meditate on all your works, I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you, my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, and you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant." According to this prayer, we have already noted that the reason for this prayer being released was due to a certain category of enemies that resisted David and that resist us. This is David's own flesh, or our own flesh, personified sin and personified death. It's not just some kind of um, sin and death, but it specifically represents
3: and acts
0: through us because as a program personified sin and death only work as programs only in a programmable device which is the heart of either a lawless person or a wicked person
3: that's
0: why our own flesh as well as these people resist us, challenge us People who are carriers of this satanic program that has an appearance of godliness but has denied its power. Who have filled the church across the whole
3: earth.
0: And the small flock of the chosen sheep among them are tormented, looking at their lawlessness, seeing their lawlessness, seeing their life. And it's as if everything is in their hands. They triumph, they would distort the word of God. They grumble at it, moan at it, they grumble at the children of God, they mock at them, they laugh at them, they violate them. But God remains patient, and they remain patient. But the hour comes, it will come when patience will come to an end, because to all things there is its own time under heaven. They will cry out to God about redemption. And so, to be heard by God, it was necessary for David to present God a foundation or a rite that could serve for God as proof that he can interfere in David's life with his mercy and truth. And from David's perspective, this kind of proof in this prayer contained ten different arguments that David brought to God, saying, Not every person who is born of God can enter into the presence of God. For this, it is necessary to grow into the full measure of the stature of Christ and to become a king and priest unto God. Until a child of God has become a king and priest unto God, he cannot enter into the presence of God. He can pray. God hears him, but he doesn't hear him as a king and as a priest. He hears him. Just as he had heard Hagar in the distance, in the wilderness, and not not anymore. Very rarely and only for a certain limit. Kings and priests are in continual communication with God. He constantly answers them and they constantly communicate. He constantly tells them he answers. They ask him questions and he answers. In the heart of this kind of person, there is a continual dialogue that occurs. And this kind of evidence that David brought to God were 10 unique arguments that yielded the right to enter into the presence of God. David prayed to God, said, hear me because of your righteousness and truth that that abide in my heart. Hear me because of the days of the old and all your works which dwell in my heart. Hear me because I spread out my hands to you. Hear me because I trust in you. He said, it's not my sword that protects me. Hear me because it lift my soul up to you. Hear me for I run to you hear me because you are my God, hear me for your name, hear me for your mercy, hear me because I am your servant. No achievements. These arguments do not represent the achievements of man, they represent the redemptive mercy of God upon which David relied on and upon which we are called to rely on when we go into the presence of God in order to represent not our interests, but His interests, His will, His will which is comprised of us inheriting in all fullness His redemption. And the phrase expressed in the words Psalm of David served as a basis for the evidence that David provided. Although the phrase may seem simple, Simple, it contains a symbolic meaning of the organized partaking of one who prays in the body of Christ in the face of Christ, from the position of which every prayer must be brought. Because the meaning contained in the word psalm means choral singing led by a full orchestra comprised of many different instruments, which refers to the church in the face of each individual member who is called to fulfill a role the in the body of Christ, whereas David himself was an image of Christ because on one hand his name means loved by God. And the disciples had heard from the clouds a voice saying, here's my beloved son, serve him. And on the other hand, the name David points to one of the names of Jesus, in which his root and his lineage is revealed. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, Revelation 22, 16. That is why the phrase Psalm of David symbolically represents the Church of Christ or saints, who have dedicated themselves to fulfilling the interests of Christ. Therefore, the meaning in the phrase Psalm of David points to the fact that all of the processes that occur in this song on one hand are rightful when they occur in the depths of the Church, which according to Scripture is the sovereign territory of the Kingdom of Heaven on Earth. On the other hand, all these processes are called to form us into the image of God so that they can come to perfection that is inherent to the perfection of the Heavenly Father. Therefore, and in this manner, every prayer that a person must give God the right to create in us his work on earth can be legitimate, only in one case, when we have not just an organizational but an organized partaking to the body of Christ in the face of a local church. Therefore, any religious organization that is not the church of Christ or doesn't accept the teaching of Christ, but instead accepts the teaching of Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad, is the religion of the Antichrist, and it cannot be a delegated pathway to God there is only one path and only one life. It is the Son of God. He had said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not one of the leaders and not Joseph Smith who is the founder of Mormonism nor Muhammad, who is the founder of um, Muslim, nor Buddha, no one said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These words were spoken only by the Son of Man, or rather, the Son of God, Jesus Christ.
3: In
0: previous sermons we have already examined that all of these religions are religions of the
3: antichrist and
0: we have looked and examined the nature of the first argument that gave god the legal right to stand on david's behalf to help him withstand his enemies we've stopped to study the second argument this was evidence brought by david in prayer that showed that he remembered the days of the old and all the works of god in these days written on
3: the tablets of our heart. It
0: dwelled in his heart continually, and he, at any point, day and night, when he was conscious, he could meditate on these works. An image of this evidence is presented in the breastplate of judgment of the high priest, which was a standard for a constant memorial before God containing the standard of a constant prayer. If you study Holy Scripture, you will see Many memorials, and many signs, and many signs of what is a memorial before God. And God remembered, and God remembered, Scripture says, and all of these, and God remembered, are not continual memorials. Only the remembrance that relates to the fulfillment of some kind of promise. But the breastplate of judgment was a continual, standard for a constant, a continual memorial before God. This is a standard for a constant memorial, constant communication with God that was not separated by sin. And this breastplate of judgment was made for and served only one object. This was a remanthimim, the presence of which allowed God to hear man and it allowed man to hear God. Urim and thumim is a symbol of wisdom that represents the Holy Spirit and the reigning teaching of Christ. And so, to be heard by God in the revelations of His Urim, who represents the Holy Spirit, it was necessary to maintain a remembrance of the works of God and the subject of His thumim which God had made in the days of the old, the meme which we know as the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ. A breastfed of judgment as a subject of a continual memorial or a continual prayer before God is a sacred image in the format of a continual prayer and allows God and gives him the basis to fulfill his will on planet Earth through those saints who are carriers and representatives of this kind of prayer, who have the authority and the right to fulfill this kind of prayer and to enter into the presence of God. And so a prayer that does not meet the requirements and characteristics of a breastplate of judgment does not have the right to be called a prayer. And therefore, a person who prays with this kind of prayer does not have the right to be called a warrior of prayer
3: or rather a person who does not pray this kind of prayer
0: does not have the right to be called a warrior of prayer because only the format of a continual memorial represented in the breastplate of the high priest gives us the right to draw near to God and to enter into the as kings and priests unto God so that we can represent the intercession that Pursues the interests of his of his will. In the Septuagint, which is the translation of seventy-seven rabbis who had translated scripture, the breastplate of judgment is called a sign of justice, because through Urimath the that were contained in the breastplate of judgment, God can tell man his judgment. So under the condition that this person is a carrier. Of this garment, we know that David had carried this garment everywhere with him. This was the garment of the high priest, and for God to answer through this arrangement, the meme. it was ne- necessary to be clothed in it, and in order to be clothed in it, it was necessary to be a high priest. And this high priest was called to, to be, had to be ready to clothe himself. We know that Saul could not carry it, but Saul had a high priest with him at every war, at every battle. We know that when he turned to Arim God did not answer him through Arim When the high priest had turned, but when David was clothed, David did not need the high priest to be present. He himself was the high priest. He was clothed in Arim and when he turned to God And God had communicated and spoken with him. Why? That's why Christ had called himself the root and the stem of David, because David was a unique person. And according to the revelation of the Holy Spirit, through the prophets of God that were present in the temple, God had revealed to them that David has the rank and the dignity of a high priest high priest and prophet that's why they looked at him not just like their king but as a prophet of Israel
3: he had
0: he had adorned these garments again carried it with him therefore this standard of a continual memorial belonged to David the image of the breastplate of judgment finds its expression in the conscience of man that is cleansed from dead works on the tablets of which as well as the seal is the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. A conscience that is cleansed from dead works with the seal on the tablets of truth and righteousness will yield to the nature of true worshipers who will give God the right to act in them and through them on planet earth. And in a certain format we have already looked at the measurements and material out of which the breastplate of judgment was to be made. We have stopped to look at the next condition which states you shall put stones, settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz and an emerald, this shall be the first row, the second row shall be a carbuncle, a sapphire and a diamond, the third row a jason and a gate and an amethyst, and the fourth row a chrysolite and onyx and jasper, they shall be set in golden settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. Each name had represented one of the names of God, first and foremost, their meaning. It was one of the names of God, as well as it contained the fate of each holy person, and all taken together. And all together, these 12 names had represented the 12 foundations of New Jerusalem and the 12 pearly gates. And not just the 12 stones, but as well as the 12 months of the tree of life, which had offered its fruit, as well as the 12 oxen that stood and that held the bronze basin. All of this was contained in these 12 stones of the breastplate of judgment, we have noted that the 12 precious stones represented the word of god or the reign of the word of god which we must represent as the basis of our prayer or rather this was the golden settings. These were the judgments of God, the Word of God. And the 12 precious stones is an image of our prayer that represent the perfect judgments of God. From this we can conclude that it is not the golden settings when the subject of the truth of the Word that of God that are engraved to fit the stones, but rather the stones in the subject of our prayers are engraved to fit the measurements and configurations of the golden settings of truth. So we are called to pray according to the will of God and not what we ourselves think. Uh, continual prayer, first and foremost, is an unceasing prayer that finds its expression and trust in God. It's the most strongest kind of prayer. That is un- it's an unceasing prayer, the strongest kind of prayer which it's in its intercession, does not step away from the goal until it receives what it has asked for. There are those people who resist this idea and they say that an unceasing prayer is when, or a strong prayer, a fervent prayer, is when a person fasts and prays in tongues, but this is not so. A person fasts and prays in tongues and his fast ceases, but this prayer, continual prayer, does not cease. And as Jesus had said, in one city there lived a widow. She had no one to turn to. She was, she went to a judge that was an unfaithful judge, and she didn't give him rest. She continually went to him, and she continually did not give him rest. He said, because she the judge, the judge then protected her, and Christ says, do you see what the judge did? He had forced her to judge her to her benefit, with her consistency, a constant prayer is the strongest and fervent kind of prayer. Not just fasting and prayer in tongues. Fasting and prayer in tongues are good, but they will not bring a person to victory if there is no consistency. We have gotten used to saying, oh, I walk away far. I will return to you again. When we walk and return and we walk and come back, we won't achieve the goal. We need to learn that we should not go far away so that then we can come back to him, but so that we can come to his sanctuary at one point and say, I will never leave, as Jacob had said. So Jacob had carried an element of this constant prayer. He said, I will not let you go until I receive. I will not seize or depart. This is the strongest kind and most fervent kind of prayer because it does not step away from its goal until it receives what it has asked for. The makeup of the breastplate of judgment in our heart is represented in the Tree of Life, the Kingdom of Heaven. This is a unique image of the Tree of Life, the Kingdom of Heaven but Christ had said, it is inside you. Growing the tree of life in our heart is building ourselves into the new man created by God in righteousness and holiness of truth, into a spiritual dwelling, a holy place. We have noted that all of the grandeur and order of the temple was made for only one holy object, and it served only one holy object, This is the Golden Ark of the Covenant. The same way the ephod of the High Priest with the breastplate of judgment was created and served only one holy object, which was called to exactly double and fulfill the functions of the Golden Ark, this is Uriman the because the golden Ark of the Covenant and the breastplate of judgment figuratively represented the conscience of a person that has been cleansed from dead works. We already know that Urim in Hebrew means light and perfection, light and right, or revelation and truth. For example, the Decalogue placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant was truth. And this truth was presented on the breastplate of judgment as the Thummim, which we know is the reigning teaching of Christ. And the light, or the revelation that a person could receive under the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, was presented in the breastplate of judgment as Urim, which we know is the Holy Spirit. The meaning of Urim is Uriya, meaning light. A worshipper of God can only be a person who has a conscience that is cleansed from dead works, or who has a wise heart on the tablets of which is sealed truth in the subject of the Thummim.
3: And I have
0: put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. Exodus 31 6. You see, the heart of every wise person. If a person does not have in his heart the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, which he could receive not through reading, but but through hearing the preached word, hearing is uh, reading is necessary, but the revelation you will receive through the preached word of the messengers of God who are going to interpret, to show and to unveil this teaching. And when it is placed there, only then God is going to lay the Holy Spirit as his wisdom that is going to reveal it. Speaking in tongues is not yet that wisdom that would unveil the Word of God to every man. If this was so, then there would be no need for God to create in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors. He would have no need to appoint them in order to teach the church. Because having a tongue, then every person would be able to teach themselves. Because a tongue is not given in order to teach man, it is given in order for a person to be able to pray with his spirit and to pray with his mind. We have noted that the companionship of Thumim and Rimm in the heart of a person is the companionship of two formats of wisdom that state that the carriers of urim and Thumim are worshippers of God and have the immunity of the Holy Spirit. In a certain format, we have already examined the first five properties of a worship of God through whom God could continually express and fulfill his will on planet earth. We have stopped to examine the sixth components of a worshipper expressed in the breastplate of judgment of our heart in the virtue of the precious diamond stone. The sixth name on the second row from the bottom that was engraved in the precious stone of the breastplate of judgment was the sixth son of Jacob, Naphtali, meaning wrestler. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Genesis chapter 30 verses 7 through 8. The name of God in the precious diamond stone according to Jewish rabbis in Hebrew means El which translated to russian means living god therefore according to the meaning of the name naphtali on the precious diamond stone we know that the function of the sixth principle laid as a foundation of our constant prayer with which we need to serve as a continual memorial before god this is our ability to allow the holy spirit to be with us in prayer battle against the powers of darkness that go against us fulfilling the will of god the name of the living god But the Lord is a true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. Jeremiah 10.10 The name of the living God was the format of an oath. Sometimes I say living um, in Russian, this is sometimes this word is sometimes said differently, but it means the same thing, living. In that category of the holy nation that did not learn how to swear by the living God and swore to him falsely, they were headed to total annihilation. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. And it shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name As the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. And so, in order to not be eradicated and destroyed by the wrath of the living God, it is necessary to be taught the ways of the nation of God to swear by the name of God, El or living God. And these paths are the paths of the commandments and statutes of God, the condition that gives the right to be taught the paths and statutes so that we can swear by the name of the living God is the desire of their knowledge. I will run the course of your commandments, says David, for you shall enlarge my heart in the original it says when my heart begins to bring fruit continuing teach me o lord the way of your statutes and i shall keep it to the end give me understanding and i shall keep your law indeed i shall observe it with my whole heart make me walk in the path of your commandments for i delight in it psalms chapter 119 verses 32 to 35. in hebrew the name of god El high or living means dwelling great Unlimited in power, determining our being, creator of our being, containing our being, preserving our being, overlooking over our being, and Lord of our being. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 20 to 21 states, when, when we could swear by the name of the living God, You shall fear the Lord your God when we have the fear of the Lord. You shall serve him,
3: and
0: to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things when your eyes have seen. All of these things we should not
3: displace
0: they are set in the order in which, which they must be fulfilled. The power of a warrior of prayer that is contained in the virtue of the name of the living God are called to represent the limitless authority of God over our being and in the time and limits allotted to us. So, we are able to express this authority in the time and limits given to us, not when we want and where we want. We will need to define what purpose is God pursuing when He calls His children to become warriors of prayer as well as how and under what conditions can God give a person the right to become a warrior of prayer so that a person could represent the interests of God in the realization of his inheritance in God. According to revelations from scripture, our prayer and the quality of warriors of prayer yielded by the virtues of a diamond are supposed to be first, unceasing, 2nd perseverant, 3rd diligent, 4th with boldness, 5th reverential, 6th with showing faith to God, 7th with thanksgiving, 8th with joy, ninth in the fear of the Lord, and 10th in the Holy Spirit over prayer and tongues. In previous sermons, in a certain format, we have already looked at the seven signs of a continual prayer and have stopped to study the eighth sign. This is the fruit of unblemished joy. We have noted that the fruit of joy in the heart defines the state of the heart of a warrior prayer as well as the quality of his prayer. As it is written, a merry heart does good, like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. One of the signs with which we should define the presence of unearthly joy will be a joyful heart that will serve as medicine for a person healing and restoring his faith and trust in God. Again, I repeat, this is not an opportunity to heal his illnesses, but it's an opportunity to heal his faith. A merry heart is medicine that heals the faith of a person and trust, because for many Christian people, their faith is ailing and their trust in God is ailing. Their heart is a grave site where all the promises of God have been buried and they state that they will receive everything in heaven that nothing on earth can be achieved by them. But this is not so. The heart must not be a grave site of promises. It must be the treasury of living words of God. A person must hold on to the living promises. We don't need to bury promises of God. A broken spirit is an image of a stiff-necked heart, guided by his pride and unrenewed mind, which lacks an atmosphere of unearthly joy. This deprives God of the basis to heal a person. This is how Apostle Jude summarized his short letter to the Church of Christ by notating Joy into a certain rank as part of our salvation in Jesus Christ. No, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy or unblemished in joy. Jude 1.24. If there will be a blemish in joy, we will not be able to stand before his glory and we will not be able to be saved from stumbling. A blemish in joy is the lack of a foundation that will keep us from stumbling to present us faultless before the presence of his glory. Second, the glory of God abides in atmosphere of unblemished joy it is an expression of unblemished joy blemish and joy is a spot that yields uncleanliness malice and lies a person who is not free from this blemish cannot be allowed to enter heaven in virtues such as joy as well as other characteristics as it is written but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 21, 27. Defining the vessel of unearthly joy in its natural characteristics, we came to the conclusion that um unblemished joy in prayer will be a direct result of the fact this kind of joy can only come from a pure person, who is pure in state and expresses this kind of state. Second, if the atmosphere of blemished joy abides in our heart, then our prayer will also express the properties of this joy. Third, we must distinguish earthly or ordinary joy from supernatural joy, which has its distinctive roots in God, its source in God, and its origin in God its origin which is unshakable eternal fourth the two kinds of joy are two programs that come from different vessels god and the fallen cherubim fifth the heart of a person is a program device and that kind of joy that a person favors clothes him and it begins to rule in His essence, and if we prefer earthly joy, then it on one end will measure our relations with God, and on the other, it will quench unearthly joy. Many saints want to have an emotional kind of joy when they come to church. They want to feel it in their emotions but it's impossible to feel it in our emotions. If we prefer joy that comes from above, that cannot be filled in our emotions, it will also be a measure of relations with God. Because of its supernatural abilities, it is impossible to test unearthly joy without feeling it in our physical abilities, because apart from earthly joy, it is not an emotion or feeling that betters a mood supernatural joy is a discipline of the mind and heart that creates peace in the heart of a person and balances, controls and leads over feelings in the beginning when unearthly joy leads the emotions of man the emotional sphere does not feel anything Only when a horse has been ridden, only then our feelings begin to feel unearthly joy. It can be expressed as feelings under the condition that our emotional horse will will be bridled, will be ridden. We will lead our emotions behind us. When we say to our feelings, rejoice, they will rejoice. Try to tell them, rejoice, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? I will rejoice in my God. Rejoice, I tell you to rejoice. Why are you moaning and groaning within me? Enough. Speak with yourselves. If something begins inside of me, I momentarily begin to speak with myself. I can talk with myself, not just with my soul, but with each individual organ in my body, if it worries me. I begin to talk with it, I begin to quiet, comfort it and say, calm down, everything is still ahead of us. God has promised and He will fulfill. He will clothe you into His resurrection, and you are going to forget about those pains, that discomfort that you are currently feeling. You have served me for a long time and you will continue to serve me. Let's rejoice together. So, talk with yourselves, just as David had done and as He had taught us to do. Unblemished joy in prayer is the proclamation of the faith of the heart that proclaims who God is for us in Christ Jesus and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This kind of proclamation of the faith of the heart is equal to the power of the words that come from the mouth of God. Turning to the unique wisdom of Scripture in defining unearthly joy, we decided to examine the virtue of unearthly joy in the heart of a person who was born from the unfading seed of the word of truth that abides in Christ. The first source of unearthly joy is God himself and therefore God is the standard and measure that yields the properties of unearthly joy. Because of this, unearthly joy is not just the property and atmosphere in which God abides, but one of His holy names with which He triumphs over His enemies. Psalms, chapter forty-three, verses four through five. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The Help of my countenance and my God. Psalms
3: 43, 4-5 It's
0: impossible to praise God in our sorrow, in our praise is always joy glory is always joy when a person sees this glory and joy he is in sorrow but he sees this victory he sees that it is there and he begins to proclaim this victory that's why he turns to his soul he talks to it and says why are you cast down O my soul why are you disquieted within me hope in God for I shall yet praise him he is the God of my countenance he is the help of my countenance and my God and to define the essence of unearthly joy and the conditions that we must fulfill to unleash its virtue in prayer we arrived at 4 aspects. This is the true, the definition and purpose of the fruit of joy in prayer, the price for gaining and releasing the fruit of joy, keeping and cultivating the fruit of joy, and the fruit and reward received from expressing pure joy in prayer. In a certain format, we have already studied the first three questions, and therefore we will turn to study the fourth question. According to which science, must we test ourselves to verify that we truly have the fruit of unblemished joy in prayer, and not some kind of forgery? We have already looked at the first sign during our previous service, according to which we must test ourselves to verify that the fruit of unblemished joy abides in our prayer. This is according to the presence and enrichment of hope in our heart. As it is written, Romans chapter 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to return back to this point. If someone had not heard this or is interested in it, you can receive this sermon and watch it either on the internet or you can receive it on a CD. The second sign by which we must test ourselves to verify that the fruit of unblemished joy abides in our prayer is the ability of our God-given redemption to be freed from dependence on Babylon. If you have in your heart the presence of dependence from Babylon, this means that you have evidence that you have the fruit of unblemished joy. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with the voice of singing declare, proclaim this, utter it to the ends of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, and they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock, and the waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Isaiah chapter 48 verses 20 through 22. According to these words, the exodus out of Babylon into the desert is the exodus out of slavery, for which it is necessary to activate certain powers that are contained in our God-given redemption with a voice of singing. The redemption that we proclaim without a voice of singing loses its strength and powers, because of which this kind of proclamation is imputed to man as empty words that can cannot be proven by the faith of the heart, which transforms man into an enemy of God. Because empty words are not clothed in the fruit of joy that yields the faith of the heart will cause the anger of God on the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6-7. through 7. So, do not communicate with these kind of people this is what this place of scripture talks about those who speak idle words empty words that are not contained in the heart therefore if we are not familiar with the order and conditions on the foundation of which we are called to cooperate with the powers of our God-given redemption that we are called to unleash as the faith of our heart with a voice of singing we will never be able to be freed from the rule of Babylon over us Babylon is the region and capital of the Chaldeans whose captives became the chosen people of God. Babylon is the former city by the name of Ur of Chaldeans, which was the birthplace of Abraham. God took out Abraham from the Ur of Chaldeans. The name Chaldean became the center, or Chaldean itself became the center of Abraham. Take a look at where Abraham was brought from. He was also taken out of Babylon, and he also had certain signs. Of the Chaldeans, the name Chaldean means wise stargazer, astrologist, because the Chaldeans they had studied the fate of man, weather, earthquakes. They looked at the stars and studied them. This was a very uh, scientific nation. Obviously, we are not referring to earthly wisdom or the earthly mind that always opposed the wisdom from
1: above.
0: The word Babylon means mixing or gates of heaven. Therefore, the image of Babylon as the capital city of the Chaldeans is an image of the mixing of man's wisdom with the revelations of the Holy Spirit, the result of which came the lineage of the giants who made a name for themselves of the building of the Tower of Babel. In this kind of mixing of human with God in this prophecy is viewed as Impiety, and the carriers of this mixture are viewed as the enemies of God. From this we know that the image of Babylon and man who is born of the seed of the word of truth is the sphere of his human thinking that is not renewed by the spirit of his mind, which is the mind of Christ, in the heart of every person born of God. And now imagine yourselves, an unrenewed mind is Babylon. Babylon which a person carries in himself and with himself. To examine ourselves for the presence of freedom from the dependence on Babylon, we examine ourselves for the presence of a renewed mind in our essence that is made dependent on our new man who was born from the unfading seed of the word of truth. On numerous occasions we have already studied one unchanging principle, that all or who we depend on is our trust and our worship and as a result, our deity. Therefore, the hope and the power and abilities of our thinking that is not renewed with the spirit of our mind is to have hope in man or on the flesh, and in this manner subject ourselves to a curse. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. So whoever says, I have my own head and I have my own Bible, these are people who carry a curse upon themselves who are being clothed in a curse. Curse is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited, He will not hear with his ears, nor hear with his heart. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. So he who relies on the Lord and not on his own mind, he is like a tree planted by the waters. He will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. To examine the basis of our trust, it is necessary to test the way by which we try to interpret Holy Spirit or Holy Scripture which reveals the character of the mind of the Lord. If we comprehend Scripture with our heart through the preached word of the messenger of God, we demonstrate our love toward the law of God. If we, while studying Scripture, rely on our intellect or the intellect of the teacher we have chosen to feed our lusts, then in doing so, we place our minds equal to the mind of God and subject ourselves to death with the uncircumcised. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of the aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 6 and 10. According to these places of scripture, we can confidently state that a person who has accepted the justification of Christ in the salvation of God but has not allowed the Holy Spirit to renew the sphere of his thinking with the spirit of his mind, this person will lose his salvation. And during his time on earth, his name will be blotted out of the Book of Life because his hope and his trust are in the abilities of the human mind in which he trusted.
3: And the
0: tragedy of this kind of state is that this person will not know that he is blotted out of the book of God. And he will accept an unclean spirit as the Holy Spirit until he finds himself in hell with those who are like him. Out of the prophecy we are studying, we are called to exit out of Babylon and run from it with the voice of singing into the desert. We know fully well that the image of the desert is an image of sanctification in which we forever free ourselves of the dependence and authority of our mind and human wisdom the discipline of sanctification and the carriers of the mixing of what is human with what is godly distinguishes in its roots from the discipline of sanctification the carriers who through the preached word of the commanding teaching of christ have purified themselves from the human impurity of babylon behind which are the spirits of seduction there is a difference between an encounter and between sanctification that occurs and will occur until while we are in the body.
3: The
0: result, so the body inside of a person cleanses him from premises of sin,
3: or
0: rather um, in the body of a person, toxins are, exit from the body either through urine or sweat. Imagine. When, if our organs, inner organs, would work for only three days with fasting, just like an encounter happens for three days long, they, people would be cleansed. Those who conduct encounters, they are long ago death dead, but they do not even know about this because they have some kind of superpower. Um, there are signs and wonders that occur but they are false signs and wonders and they rely on them and they don't even know where the Holy Spirit is, where he's not for them the word of God stops becoming a law they rip out various places of scripture find me at least one word encounter in the Bible and sanctification can happen in three days while a person lives in the body he must continually be sanctified just as the blood of Jesus Christ in the body of Christ it sanctifies us completely and continually and not just periodically Therefore, there is a difference between these kinds of disciplines for some it is happens periodically and for others it happens continually. The result of sanctification in the desert for those who disengaged with Babylon is the satisfaction of their thirst with the water from the rock which clothes them into great and perfect peace. Whereas the result of sanctification in the desert for those who did not disengage with Babylon was the lack of great and perfect peace in their hearts. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water is cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah chapter 57 verses 15 through 21. The third sign by which we must test ourselves to verify that the fruit of unblemished joy abides in our prayer is by our relationship to the celebrating of Pesach, according to the statute established by God. Then He said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Nehemiah chapter eight verses ten through twelve. You see here, the people had understood these words and they had ceased to be sorrowful. This celebration was supposed to occur in joy and gladness, and they had to also send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. So if you paid close attention, then the requirements established by God for the celebrating of the Pesach feast was intended to be preceded by the eating of fat, drinking the sweet, and sending portions for those for whom nothing was prepared. We must consider that the image of the requirements of the Old Testimony about celebrating the Pesach Feast was a shadow of the future fulfillments in the body of Christ, which is viewed as the image of God's chosen remnants, we must consider what should we view as the eating of fat and drinking of sweet drinks? In who must we send the portions of the feast? Or according to what criteria must we define those who did not prepare? According to the words of this passage, the nation stopped crying when they understood the words of the Levites and went and ate and drank and sent portions with great joy. In this manner, the great joy became the result of celebrating the Feast of the Pesach according to its requirements. The category of people that celebrate Pesach according to its requirements already abide in the atmosphere of great and perfect peace in their faith. Whereas the category of people that does not yet abide in the atmosphere of unblemished joy and peace in their faith is evidence that they have not yet been formed and do not understand the essence of these requirements. A question arises, what does Scripture view as eating the fat which was necessary to prepare and eat in order to give the Holy Spirit the foundation to immerse us into the atmosphere of peace that is yielded in the heart of our Heavenly Father and His immovable kingdom in the heart. Of a wise person. Before we answer this question, I would like to return to the literal and joyful atmosphere as well as the literal order in which this Pesach was intended to be portioned out for those who could not prepare it because it was that category of Israelites that came to this feast from different cities and countries that did not have familiar friends and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Because of this, this category of Israelites could not prepare the Pesach. It was prepared only by those who were in Jerusalem. And if you had come to Jerusalem from faraway cities, and that's when Jews, where Jews had to come, they didn't have a place where they could prepare it and where they could eat it. Therefore, it was necessary to invite them and give them a portion because they could not prepare it. In the literal sense, the eating of the fat that was an it Inalienable part of the celebrating of the Pesach Feast was a dish prepared from a well-fed purd or from a well-fed calf or kid which was served with various seasons. This Passover meal or Haggadah called Seder means order. So in this evening, it was, people had to talk about how what Pesach meant for them and how God led them out of Egypt. This was called Hagada, and in the Haggadah Hagada they said meaning order, and it was prepared before the piercing of the Passover lamb. For 16 centuries, the Pas- uh, Paschal Seder did not have a specific ritual in eating. All that was necessary for this meal was for the household to not have any leaven. In the second century after the birth of Christ. The Jewish rabbis composed of a certain range of the Passover setter and developed a certain ritual according to which the Passover Haggadah was to be performed. In addition to the matzo prepared for the meal, three whole sheets of matzo were placed in front of the head of the setter, which were shifted with napkins. To do this, it was necessary for the matzah to be of high quality. There was wine in the amount not less than four glasses for each, on a special dish in order was laid out. There was roa, baked piece of meat with a bone, baits, a steep egg, maror, bitter greens, for example horseradish or watercress, keroset, a mixture of grated apples, nuts, cinnamon, and wine. Carpus, usually boiled potatoes or carrots, and hazaret, grated mirror. Perhaps this was done differently in the Jews previously, but after the second century, this, is, uh, this was called to be observed. The Passover lamb itself, according to the order of Moses, was slaughtered in the assembly of the entire society of Israel in the evening of 14th of Nisan during the offering of the daily evening sacrifice which was brought from the 6th hour to the ninth hour. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a lamb of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep for the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. You see, the whole assembly were called to gather, and they were called to pierce these lambs. And then, when they would do this in Egypt, Then they went to their homes and with the blood of the lamb they would sprinkle their doorposts they would cook it and eat it. Upon the exodus from Egypt, the slaughter of the Passover lamb took place on the territory of the Temple of Solomon or on the Mount of Olives where the whole congregation of the sons of Israel flocked to the Passover feast. After the slaughter of the lamb, the Israelites settled families on the territory of the Zion or Mount of Olives. There they roasted it on fire and there they ate it. This basic meal was considered sacred, and then they again returned to their homes for the basic meal seder, which although it did not contain a sacred meaning, was eaten in the order of a certain ritual. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, and he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us in the original event seder there will not be a Passover lamb. There will be this Passover setter. They said, Where do you want us to prepare? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So before the Passover lamb was to be pierced. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, or rather a matzah, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Luke 22, verses 7-20. The ritual of reclining during the meal was borrowed by the Jewish rabbis from the Romans. Before this, the Jews, until the Romans had overcome them, they did it at tables. And we remember how, for example, Saul sat at the table, there were people sitting and they sat at tables, they didn't recline. But when they were overcome by the Romans and they had seen this ritual of eating at the table, how Romans had ate, uh, the Romans had eaten their food by reclining. They really liked this ritual. There is a reason why. And they had accepted this ritual. And Christ did not violate this ritual and also reclined when he ate. Because Christ did not violate the ritual when the first August, first Augustus, uh, he attributed to himself gospel the first name gospel came from augustus the roman empire gospel meaning the reigning news it is good gospel is good but it is first reigning
3: and all of
0: uh, the things uh, all of the decrees that came from this roman emperor were called the news reigning therefore christ had called himself gospel good news
3: while reclining
0: at the table each participant of the meal leaned on his right shoulder beside the reclining person next to him reclining during the meal indicated a person belonging to the estate of people who have the freedom and right to occupy state positions and therefore only free citizens of Rome could recline during during a meal. The slaves did not have a right to recline during the eating of the meal and they were supposed to eat standing. In modulating the narratives of the three evangelists, we can conclude that two days before Passover in the house of Simon the leper during supper, John reclined at Jesus' chest, which indicates that during the supper he was on the right side of Jesus. Considering that Jesus dipped a piece of bread in the vinegar he gave it to Judas Iscariot, follows that during Iscariot, Iscariot is a place not far away, not far, is a city not far. Judas from Iscariot. This follows that during the supper, Jesus reclined at the chest of Judas Iscariot. And John had reclined at the chest of Jesus. And therefore, Peter gave a sign. He said, ask who? And John uh, John asked. Peter, uh, John asked. He gave it. Jesus had dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas Iscariot because he laid reclined next to him. He reclined at his chest. Imagine the situation. He knew who would betray him. And he respected him in this manner by reclining on him. He knew that he was a thief, he knew that he would betray him, and he reclined on his chest at this time because the hour had not yet come. Furthermore, this supper was not Passover. The basic meal called Seder was prepared by disciples in Jerusalem, and usually in the evening of the 13th Nisan, the Paschal Haggadah was already prepared, and the participants proceeded in the evening to a meal at the onset of the 14th Nisan, because for the Jews, their next day begins not in the morning, but just as the sun sets, that's when their next day begins. So, on the 13th, they sat at this table, and they were at this table for the whole night upon the start of the 14th Nisan. Then after the paschal meal setter, which lasted until the morning, everyone went to the Temple Mountain to slaughter the Passover lamb, who was slaughtered in the evening from the 6th hour to the hour of the ninth. There he was roasted in the fire and eaten, and after that they went to their homes. However, this Pesach holiday was special, since the centurion, led by the high priest, allowed Pilate to crucify the prisoner, Jesus, and they heard him so that they could execute Jesus before the slaughter of the Passover lamb began. Jesus, at this time, he had hung on the cross at the time of Passover, he was tormented, And His blood was spilled. And at that moment, when the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, There was such a large earthquake that mountains had split into half, into two.
3: stones that had
0: covered tombs were removed from their places Matthew chapter 27 verses 45 through 52 states now from the 6th hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Of course, such an earthquake combined with such an eclipse of the moon and stars like the daily evening sacrifice and the ritual of slaughtering of the Paschal Lamb was torn. People who were on the Temple Mountain came to an indescribable horror and fear. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts in the chest and returned. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. What did he see? He saw the eclipse and a strong earthquake. The whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their chests and returned. Luke chapter 23, verses 47 through 48. Our time has come to an end. Now I don't have enough time to provide the meaning for all of this. I don't know. Shall I continue? All right, let us us finish.
3: And so...
0: What does eating the fat and drinking the sweet mean and how should we eat the fat and drink the sweet in the atmosphere of the joy of our home? And who were the people who couldn't prepare the Passover meal themselves? To know who must we share the portions of the fat and sweet with so that they could share in the joy of our meal because only upon understanding the presence of the fat and sweet in our heart can we have a testimony in our heart that our worship is made an unblemished joy which yields the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven in our heart. And so the first question, what is the image of the fat in the sweet? The fat meal in our heart must be viewed as the commanding teaching of Jesus Christ anointed with the Holy Spirit or the cooperation of a the and Thamim in our heart, because only the Holy Spirit can anoint that wisdom that is in our heart, the companion cooperation of two wisdoms. This is written in Job chapter 36 verses 16 through 17. The reason why Job had endured this, indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint what and what is set on your table would be full of richness but you' are filled with the judgment do the wicked judgment and justice take hold of you the reason why this had happened with job was because he did not his mind was not renewed and an unrenewed mind job thinks that it, it thinks that it can judge everything and everyone he thinks that he can appraise everyone who is dressed and what? who came, how, who has said what, and so forth. And so God says to him, I have brought you into a broader place where there is no restraint, and what is on your table will be full of richness, but you are filled with the judgment due to the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. And so what is fat and sweet is the cooperation of the two formats of wisdom in the heart of a person. This is not in the literal sense. We're going to talk about the literal sense, but this doesn't mean that I am going to share only with that. But we must share also with regular things and food with one another. But I want to pay attention to This is not literal food, but this is talking about anointing what is sweet. Whereas a sweet in our heart is a proclamation of the faith of our heart. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 21 and 24, and the wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increases learning. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Do you feel here that what is sweet is the faith?
3: That heals this
0: is what we must share with what is fat and what is sweet, what you are filled with? Second question How must we eat the fat and drink the sweet in the atmosphere of the joy of our household? We must note that our home and our three unique dimensions that communicate between one another, which are simultaneously our home in the house of our God, it is the home upon the heights of the heavens, house of prayer, a congregation of saints, and our wise heart which cooperates with the wisdom of God. And so, to eat fat and drink sweet is to praise and glorify God in the joy of our heart. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Psalms 147 verse 1. Third question. Who should we view as people who cannot prepare a Passover feast for themselves? The image of people who came to Jerusalem to worship but were not inhabitants of Jerusalem are infants in Christ who, due to certain circumstances, have not yet died to their nation, their household and their corrupt desires. And therefore, this category of people cannot be an image of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which we view as the bride of the Lamb. All that this category of people who are found at the state of infancy can do is walk in the light of the face of Jerusalem, not be it, but walk in its light. So, if He will allow this light to be poured out on them, in order to send them these parts that are going to be expressed in this light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it but there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation 21, verses 24-27 To To define our partaking to the category of the body of the Lamb or the category of the saved is through meek lips or through the lack of the meekness of lips. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison with it we bless our god and father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of god out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing my brethren these things ought not to be so does a spring send forth water fresh water and bitter from the same opening can a fig tree my brethren bear olives where a grapevine bear figs thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh James chapter three verses seven through twelve. Proverbs fifteen four says a wholesome tongue is a tree of life but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So that's why defining our partaking to the bride of the lamb is to be done are we able to control our tongue, our words, especially when we are angered? having been angered do not sin when you feel anger this is not yet sin but when if you are able to bridle yourselves and during this kind of emotion you don't speak foolish unruly dirty words when a person is angered when a person is angered he usually begins to call things names and sometimes when this happens and usually when this happens between husband and wife and if they are unbridled, they pour out all kinds of bad words against each other and they're walking around upset, not meaning to do so, and they say their sorries and they don't know what had happened among them. They didn't want to, but they broke each other's hearts by saying such words. And the reason is the lack of a meek tongue. It is unbridled because we control our essence. If we are able to control our essence, it is done through the tongue. When we take it and we begin to control it, I want to show you who these people are, that they must not be thrown out. If these people are there, and there are many of them, these are infants in Christ. We must distinguish them from carnal people. Not every carnal person is an infant, an infant is always carnal and a carnal person is not always an infant. Because an infant, he is always going to hear and although he doesn't understand, he's going to accept it. And he's not going to moan against it, he's not going to control you or inspect you. But a carnal person will always moan and groan, he will control and he will inspect. That's why there is a difference between both of them. And. We do not share uh, the sweet and the fat with these people because not everyone is going to receive that image of life, that revelation that we carry. Fourth question, how can we share what is fat and sweet with infants in Christ and they can share with us the joy of the Passover table? To share what is fat and sweet is to share communication with all saints who first are weaker than us.
3: If
0: we do not send parts at the festive table with those who have not prepared anything, we will not have communication with one another through which we could have communication with God, and therefore the blood of Jesus Christ will not receive the opportunity to cleanse us from all sin. You see how important it is to send parts to those who do not have it. If we see that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk, in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-7 through 7. And if we do not have communication and stoop down to those saints who, due to their spiritual maturity, did not yet die to their nation, the house of their father, and their corrupt desires, we will not have evidence expressed in the fruit of unblemished joy in prayer. Amen. Let us bow our knees, bend our knees, bow our heads in prayer, and let us thank God for that word that we were able to have today. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for the opportunity to be in this place and to hear the words of eternal life. May the blessing that is yours, be upon your nation, upon all of those who are able to hear, independent of the fact of what spiritual level they are found in. I know that you love infants, and they are not at fault for being infants. Each of us, having come to you at one point, we were infants, and each of us was given time in order to grow into the full measure of the stature of Christ, so that we do not be infants who are swayed by all kinds of winds of teachings therefore when we share with the infants and what we have they will not be swayed by all kinds of winds of teachings because we will give them those parts of that table that food that we have received in us they're going to look at that image of life and upon those proclamations of faith that we proclaim and they will be they will grow along with us. And may your blessing be upon your whole nation. Have mercy upon your inheritance. And demonstrate your power and your might. We continue to proclaim the faith of our heart. That in time you are going to clothe our bodies into our new man. And our illnesses will be thrown into eternity. All of our weaknesses will depart. You will show the difference between those who had served you and obeyed you and those who had served their own mind or other idols and simultaneously God. May the greatness of your glory be magnified. Your word, may it be magnified in the heart of each individual person who hears these words. And we bow down before you in this hour upon this blessed place, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come.